Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Real Estate Milestones. Today, we have Jeffrey Donis on for the second time. We're, we had, a, I guess it was a, about a year ago that you were on last time, but I'm yeah. um, looking forward to catching up and, and getting an update on what you've been up to. So, uh, Jeffrey, thanks for coming on. Yeah, likewise, Ben. Appreciate your, uh, you having me back on. Hope you've been well. Yeah, been great. Um, and same for you. So, um, last time we said we, we learned what your first milestone in real estate is. Now, I want to hear what your... I guess what's your what's your most recent milestone in, in real estate? Yeah, so uh, a few months ago, my brothers and I we actually ended up closing on a, one of our late, our latest acquisition in Atlanta, Georgia. It was a little under two hundred units, C class property, and it was a little bit of an older vintage deal uh, built in the sixties. So it did come with uh, some deferred maintenance for sure, but that was the latest deal we did. It was a little under twenty million in regards to the purchase price uh, raised a little under nine and a half million uh, and currently now managing that property things are going well but had a lot of learning lessons on that one still learning a lot about it and it's given us a lot of confidence moving forward and as we uh, pursue our next acquisition that's awesome congratulations Thank um it's a, it's a big deal so um yeah good uh good job with that so um i'm sure that there's a lot of lessons to come with that so yeah. i guess can you tell us tell us a little bit about um, how that went and, and what the lessons were before closing and then you can get into more of the details after. For sure. So I, for me in my role, I do the investor relations and, and capital raising part of it. So uh, on that front, obviously there was a lot of uh, pushback and just different types of obstacles we had to overcome. And the timing of this deal was, I would say, less than convenient because as soon as we got it under LOI and under contract, that was around May and June. And uh, the Fed started raising interest rates during that time period. So as that all happened, obviously a lot of investors and partners were scared. Even lenders were scared. They didn't really know what was happening. We didn't really either, right? No one did. So we were experiencing a lot of different obstacles like lenders not wanting to lend on the deal or investors not wanting to invest because they weren't sure where the economy was going. And if you look out, if you were like watching the news or anything like that, you'd see everyone was saying, don't invest in real estate right now and just stay put. Uh, and for good reason. I mean, like I can understand where they're coming from, but that's where as a, as an operator and as someone who's an active investor, uh, you can educate your investors. So over time, we were able to get investors to feel comfortable with the deal and partners to feel comfortable with it. But it took a lot of phone calls, a lot of conversations. And also we, we heard a lot of no's from a lot of different people for the reasons I already mentioned mainly. Um, but that was on the capital side of things. When it comes to the acquisition side, this deal, as I mentioned, was a C-class property, older vintage, and it was in a rougher uh, part of Atlanta. So this obviously taught us a lot in regards to what people and our investors are looking for and sort of solidified our criteria moving forward into the, the later half of 2022 and also uh, this year, 2023. So now we're, we're looking at you know Class B, 1980s vintage deals uh, in areas that have 50000 a median household income or higher, uh, and obviously little to no crime. And as I mentioned, class B deals in 
preferably class B plus or class A areas, because at the end of the day, uh, you can like find a deal, but if you can't you know, get the equity in place, then you're obviously not going to be in a good position. So it's good to keep that in mind before you're you're looking for deals and talking to brokers so that you can have the criteria that you know if you find a deal that fits it, uh, you can close. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess going into more of the details, I guess what was the um, I guess the biggest difficulty in terms of um, bringing everything together um, in terms of like the the thing that part of the deal, the part that you think, you know, wasn't interested, like the investors weren't interested in or like the part that yeah. was, um, yeah, like what was the, the difficulty there? Yeah, so in this one, the median household income was lower than $50,000, uh, $50, which is, isn't always a bad thing, right? We, we see deals that are in good areas, just perhaps the people there maybe don't make a lot of money or uh, in regards to other other scenarios where there are just high crime in certain pockets that kind of uh, will negatively impact the overall crime rate of the submarket that you're in. But when it comes to our property itself, we'll always look at each deal and make sure there's no crazy crime per or on the on site on the property, like a murder or things like that. But in this case, on this one, uh, it was just not in the best part of Atlanta and it is in the path of progression. And that's what we liked about it. Obviously we're looking for value add opportunities. So with certain deals, uh, these kinds of opportunities do come across where it's in a little rougher part of whatever submarket you're looking in. And that was our case. Uh, it was a little bit rougher, a uh, pretty low median household income. And then when it came to the vintage, it being a 60s build, a lot of lenders and investors get weary of it because the, the potential um, you know, unexpected renovations that will come up after due diligence. And obviously there's certain things that you just can't pick up on you're walking the deal with a, with a property manager. It's not like you can break down the walls and look at it, um, look at the entire property and the ins and out. But uh, on this deal, that was obviously a risk with it being older, just increases the likelihood of there being a, an unforeseen expense, uh, which is why now we've tweaked that criteria. But those were the main three uh, issues, I'd say, was the, the obviously the higher crime that we like to see, uh, the vintage, and then the median household income being lower than what most of our partners were looking for. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess like to your point, as, as you mentioned, that there's nothing inherently wrong with having a lower household income or having, um, I guess, or if the area tends to have or crime. Yes, that's those are not great things. But yeah. sometimes that the reason why I say there's nothing inherently wrong with that is because sometimes that means that you have the best deal that other people won't want to go there so that right. you can end up getting it for a lower price. You can it may be there's the most opportunity for improvement right you can implement security measures and fences and and cameras and and make it even safer therefore the clients or the the people tenants who are living there are safer there um maybe even willing to pay more rent and also a lot of times those opportunities are like the landlord may have neglected to upkeep that property and maybe that's why you'd have such an opportunity to create so much value because you can make the rooms better the, the, the units better make the hallways better add amenities, make it safer, and all these things would lead to higher rents. I guess the issue is when those rents become too high, it'd be too high of a percentage of their income for right. it to be tenable. Exactly. And so to touch on the first point, I think where there's obviously things turning other people away, we saw it as an opportunity. So that's why we thought it was a good deal to pursue. And we did. And obviously ended up going well in the, in the long run. Still not out of the deal yet, but obviously it's gone well up, to those, up until this point. Now, to touch on your second point, uh, when you mentioned uh, in regards to 
oh, oh I forget your second point. What was your second point? Um, that it's the opportunity to create a lot of value with um in in these properties, and that you can also if it's too if you create too much value and try to boost rents too high, yeah. maybe too high awesome. percentage of their income. Yeah. So obviously you want to keep that into account. And what you're touching on is we'll, the way that our property managers are trained to run the numbers in regards to when they're screening their residents is say the rent is a thousand dollars a month and an individual is making a certain amount, the way that we gauge whether or not they pass that part portion of the screening is if you multiply that rent times 12, right? For 12 months in a year, then you multiply that by three, that shouldn't be greater than their income for the year. So the median household income is just the average of the of the submarket that you're in. And for ours, as I mentioned, it was lower than what we'd like it to be. But what we look at is right outside of our immediate submarket, we saw there was a lot of different areas that are way more affluent than where our market submarket was uh, in regards to income. So when you look at that and you see where that progress is coming, we were not far at all from Midtown and uh, downtown Atlanta. So obviously with these areas increasing in regards to affordability is, is obviously getting harder and there's a lot more demand for rental units in that market. We see that pressure coming into our submarket. So when you look at it from a grant, from the grand scheme of things and overall in regards to that market, you'll see why there's still opportunity in certain areas, even though uh, in, in, you might think of it as a little bit more risky and perhaps it is, but I think that's where as investors, you can get opportunity and as you mentioned, win a deal at a better price. Right. And I, and to bring it even further, there's Atlanta is growing tremendously in terms of um, population and, and job growth, but specifically that there's a, I know based on your deal, there were literal like new employment hubs, like being built, like yeah. not too far, like very close by there's like, I guess the places that would create a lot of jobs. Um, I guess in Atlanta specifically, there's Tyler Perry's film studio. Um, yeah. Uh, are they expanding the airport? There, there's other things yeah. too. But, Amazon's yeah. moving in, Microsoft. Right. I mean, like literally all these tech companies are moving into Midtown and downtown and all of those are less than you know, 20, 30 minutes from our property. So when you see things like that, uh, Atlanta's projected to be the number one market in 2023. Obviously, there's certain metrics that you want to meet when, you're ha- when you have a criteria, but I also think you can't just copy and paste it for every single deal. There's certain opportunities that a lot of investors will overlook but especially when you're getting started out, if you can just look at a certain opportunity and if you have a shot and then you can, if it makes sense, sometimes it just makes sense to take the risk and go for it, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess you touched on one of the things I find to be the beauty of real estate, that every single deal is inherently different than every other deal, right? Like yeah. you cannot, even if you have the same exact building next door, that exact piece of land cannot be copied, right? It's the exactly. same, is the coordinates relative to the center of the earth right? Like the longitude and latitude, like that's the only place where this property is. Yeah. And um, that's something that's really interesting. It makes it um, unique. And that's why it takes critical thinking and other kinds of expertise to execute. Cause it's not like, you know, every, every stock, every common stock from Apple, <laughs> they're all the same, right? But not yeah. every property is the same. So um, speaking of difference in properties, you mentioned tweaking your criteria. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your, your thought process and, and what you're looking for. Yeah. So after, as I mentioned, after doing this deal, uh, we had spoken with a lot of different partners and obviously our, ourselves internally. And we just realized that right now, especially where we're going with the current environment and the economy and the capital markets, it makes sense for us to 
transition from being more of a C-class type of operator into a more of a B-class operator where we're looking to increase in regards to the, or just change the vintage that we're looking at. So initially, as I mentioned, we were open to 60s build and 70s product, but now we're more so focused on a 1980s vintage, preferably early 2000s for various reasons. One, there's going to be less deferred maintenance. Um, two, residents tend to be a little bit less of a, put it into like, you know, just a little easier to deal with. There's a lot of less problems. Obviously, there may be still be delinquency, but it's not as big of a problem as it is with other types of uh, lower vintage properties, um, depending on the market. Now, obviously, it's going to depend on the submarket that you're in, but for the markets that we're in, that's what we're seeing. Uh, and then when it comes to actually getting deals done on the capital side, whether you're speaking about debt or equity, a lot of these lenders, when it comes to debt, are looking at properties that are in markets that have over 200,000 people, which is typically the top 20 MSAs in the country. Uh, that's where we're looking and some of the biggest MSAs in the Southeast. And then when it comes to vintage, they're looking at the same vintage that we're looking at. The newer, the better for them. They see that as less risky. Uh, and then when it comes to um, purchase price and, and unit size for us, it's still 100 to 200 units. But as we were speaking about earlier before we got on this call, the smaller the deal, the smaller the raise. And for us right now with things being so shaky with interest rates going up, if we find a smaller deal that's under 100 units and it meets all of our criteria, like we're looking at one that that has met all of our criteria, it's just outside of that 100 to 200 unit range on the lower side, we're not going to back away from it. And in fact, it excites me because I think it's a great way for us to do a deal during this uncertain time where a lot of people aren't doing any deals. And if you can get something done, obviously it being a smaller raise makes it more likely that you won't have as many issues. Uh, a lot of people were struggling to get their raises done during the last few months because of all the uncertainty. But the way that we see it is obviously right now, interest rates are high and deals aren't cash flowing as much, but the interest rates won't stay up high forever. Eventually they will come down. And if you can get a deal right now at a discount, because a lot of sellers, most of them that need to sell or are selling are doing it because they have to, not because they want to, right? Uh, cap rates are expanding in certain markets and whether it's by a lot or little, I still think we, we're getting discounts and we're seeing that right now. So if we were to win a deal today and we could then refinance, let's say in two, three years, we're not even projecting this, but it most likely will happen if interest rates come down, you'll be able to refi out of this high interest rate environment into something lower. Uh, you're going to have some type of equity there. So that's an opportunity if you can scoop something up right now. I think when people always talk about there being opportunities coming, I think they're starting now. You know, I've seen so many different deals being getting done and personally with our acquisition process, we've seen a lot of deal flow and prices are coming down in a lot of the markets that we're looking in. So if we are able to find a deal that meets our criteria, we're not going to back down, but we do want to be extra conservative when it comes to the, the the criteria that we're looking for. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I guess to take it even further, working in the, I guess, even if you get deals below a hundred units, that tends to even have less competition because yeah, there's right. less, less of the institutional, um, like I guess less of the bigger operators, institutional, like you're dealing more in the mom and pop space rather than the institutional and like really highly sophisticated space where um, I guess in that space, like cost of capital is really what drives the, um, I guess cost of capital drives the acquisitions everywhere. But um, but to I guess to take it even further, um, if you have these smaller deals, you might, you we know that you kind of, get less of that economies of scale, right? Then property management company might be more expensive relative to the units. Yeah. And there might be other things, considerations in that in terms of economies of scale, I guess, 
How are you thinking about that situation from an operator's perspective? Um, given that you know, if you are not managing it yourself, that would maybe be a, a even higher expense. For sure. So when we look at it on this deal, as as you already said, it's deal by deal basis. So in the other markets, it may not make sense to do this for us, but in the market that we're looking in, with this deal that I'm talking about. I won't give too much details because we haven't won it yet. And I would hate to make my own competition. <laughs> but in regards to this deal, it's next to a deal that we already own. Not too far, actually. It's maybe a half an hour, let's say. And when you're talking about it from the sense of one, RPM has already actually managed this property in the past. So they, they know the property. This deal is functions as a bigger deal, meaning it has its own leasing office. So a lot of deals that are smaller typically don't. Uh, this one has a pool, similar amenities, gym, uh, playground, things like that. It's just smaller. And it in our underwriting, we've already implemented having a full-time on-site property manager and the numbers still pencil out. So when you look at it as, at that, I don't see why you wouldn't go after a deal that big or that small. And especially for us, as I mentioned, one of the biggest reasons why we're going small is so that we can ensure that we don't have any issues on the raise and just get it completely finished. Um, and when you look at a deal and you have partners who you're speaking with and they can give you the confidence of saying, if you win this deal, you'll, you know, I'll, we'll get this done. That for me, there's no reason not to go after it. That makes sense, which I, I touched on before the call um, in regards to what we've been focused on is really strengthening our relationships, whether that's with our capital partners on the debt and equity side, but also just our, our other asset manager and things like that, that we work with is to ensure that, you know, we're, we're really brainstorming and talking preliminary on all deals that we're pursuing so that when we do win it we don't have any issues because we already all talked about exactly what would happen if this happens yeah it makes a lot of sense it's touched on something you you brought up also that the fact that um with these with i guess a deal of um well no it doesn't really matter the size i guess buying deals now as you, as you mentioned cap rates have been expanding and prices have been coming down and that i'm also under the impression that although interest rates are high, maybe not high historically, that there is room for them to come down sometime in the future. Um, and you mentioned that if they come down in the future, that'd be an opportunity to refinance. I guess I, I want to hear what your thoughts on this are, but even if interest rates were to stabilize, I are, were not to come down. I believe that in two to three years, refinancing would not be a huge issue, given that first, as interest rates stabilize, people are going to be less scared all these right. real estate businesses are going to have to start. So you're saying a lot of people are not buying deals right now, but eventually if they're going to have to start buying deals, which would also put cap rates back up because you're going to get more copper, you're going to get more competition per deal. Yeah, um, and then, or yeah, sorry, cap rates are going to come back down and you're, cause you're going to get more people bidding on those deals. Right. But then exactly. also that you have, you're going to have paid down some of your principal, which have built some equity in the deal, which can be used for the refinance. So I'm thinking like now, what I'm getting at is a lot of people are not doing deals now, but now might be the best time to do deals. I just want to hear yeah, how you think about that. Yeah, that's exactly what like my mindset is. And uh, the only thing is it's hard to find deals. That's why the, I know, that's also why people aren't doing deals. I think a lot of people are on the sidelines because there's not a lot of, there's not as many motivated sellers right now as a lot of people are predicting there to be, because that's when a lot of these bridge loans from three years ago will start maturing. So therefore there'll be a lot of people that, don't have a choice but to sell. And a lot of them, unfortunately, will be underwater or need to sell because they, they can't refinance, right? So they're now going to be considered motivated sellers. And when you're motivated, it leaves less negotiations on your side and 
as a seller and puts it more on the side of the buyer. So that's where the buyers come in and now are able to negotiate lower prices. And that's why cap rates, people are predicting that they'll continue expanding. For us, I, I we're looking and I always, this didn't make sense to me from the beginning. I hear people say, oh, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Like I'm not going to buy anything right now. For me, I'm always looking. And if it, I can't find anything, then that that's not a fun thing, right? But it doesn't mean I stop looking. And I know the deals will eventually come, but it's typically almost like, always too late by the time that you start buying or start looking. That means everyone's starting to look, which means it's just going to be more competitive and just as competitive as it's always been. So I th- in my opinion, no one should ever stop looking. You should just, maybe you're not buying because nothing pencils out, you know? Um, so that's how we've been approaching it. We've just been strengthening our relationships with the brokers. And that's how we found a few deals that we have some, some hope on. And we're pretty confident we'll win them. And at a really good cost basis because we were always in the market to buy. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I guess something that's hard to predict or hard to like I guess speculate on and also maybe won't really give us much insight but like what I've been thinking about is like are more people on the sidelines because deals aren't penciling because interest rates are high and that prices haven't come down yet and sellers haven't or like sellers that are not motivated or just people who might sell or want to sell or have not adjusted their expectations or are people waiting for there to be motivated sellers and therefore thinking that it's going to come down lower, right? Like, like what I'm saying is that are people, I guess the idea is that do people are people waiting opportunistically for prices to come down lower or people just, or sellers not adjusting their expectations yet, right? And it seems like kind both. of more, yeah, yeah, I want to say it what you both, think. But it has to be both, but there are people that I've heard that have said they're waiting. And I'm sure you've heard that too. There's a lot of capital on the sidelines is the saying. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to, um, like for us, when we look at deals, we don't look at it based on what we think will happen. We look at it, what's happening right now. And obviously this, whatever, you, I think everyone has their own investment philosophy, but it's all about cash flow for us. So when you look at a deal based on the current environment that the, you know, in interest rates where they are right now, where does our deal pencil out? This is just a number. It's an it's a, it's a analyzer that you plug information into. Now, obviously you have more knowledge outside of the analyzer, like what the Fed's talking about and what the speculation is in the environment and the economy and what what do you think things will happen in the next three to four years that will help you and maybe give you more insights as to how you should tweak your underwriting. But at the end of the day, it's whether or not this deal cash flows. And if it doesn't, if it cash flows right now, chances are the probability of interest rates coming down over the next five years, let's say, are pretty high, right? Because they're already really high. And but I mean, if I had to put like a lot of money on it over five years, I would expect them to come down. I would put money against that. That's a pretty, I say that's a pretty high probability. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. And I guess my fundamental thesis behind why I believe that is because the the federal government does not want to service their debt at this rate. Like yeah. it seems like they're paying us way too much money. I'm talking about short-term bonds and just bonds in general that like, you know, if they could choose to pay, borrow money at a lower rate, why would they do it higher? And I guess that's why inflation is the thing we're looking at. Because if inflation comes down, then the spread between interest rates and inflations or inflation will also come down. And therefore they could move interest rates down even lower because inflation's down, right? So like that's kind of why I say if what they're doing is really to stop inflation, that mm-hmm. if inflation comes down, that would be that they would have a lot of motivation to bring interest rates down also. Yeah, exactly. And if it cash flows if your deal cash flows now in the current interest rate environment that we're in currently 
and then interest rates come back down, uh, cash flow would just go up if it's a bridge loan. And if it's locked yeah. in, obviously you locked in something that you underwrote it at. So it's not like you're going to have any surprises. And then you can re you can either sell and profit or refi, pay the prepayment penalty, but or prepayment penalty or whatever fees you have to pay. But you're still able to refinance into a, a, a even better interest rate environment. So if you think of it from the terms of as long as it cash flows today when I'm, when I'm buying it, and then you can even in your underwriting, what you can do is have conservative, quote unquote, right underwriting, where you're assuming it'll be worse in three years if you refi or worse when you sell whatever your exit strategy is just assume it'll be worse and i mean if it, if it pencils out with all of these things in place you're you're just why would you not buy is my question yeah I, i'm under that that impression as well that if you do all of the sensitivity analysis and all of the stress tests on your deal and that you and you're not underwater and you're not losing the deal that yeah. that is you know like that's that's the first question right is there a plausible scenario in which I could lose this deal? And if there is not, maybe there's just like the crazy, like outlandish, like, you know, you couldn't predict scenario, but yeah. realistically that's going to affect people or like, it's going to affect people much worse if that's yeah. the thing that breaks your deal. Right. And so that if you can survive these, these, I guess these stresses on your, in your conservative underwriting that that should be, that should definitely give you confidence in the deal, especially given that, um, I mean, I don't know, like, I guess the, the, the con, I guess the contra to that would be yeah. that interest rates are still going up, even if they're going up slowly. What if the fed just does 25 basis points for like a couple more months? Like it could get to a point where you got, you have no cash flow. Um, and I well, guess, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that all depends. You're right. Yeah, that 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 that, could, that most likely will happen. They'll, let's say they do uh, raise rates. Who knows? And I'm not predicting that they're going to, but let's say they do. Either way, depends on what you're doing. And as an operator, and as someone who is, you know, your fiduciary responsibility is to protect your investors' capital. When you're going in, you're looking at that, and you're taking that into account. Whether you're going to lock in your rate, or if you're going to go with bridge, you're either going to buy a rate cap. That's most likely what you should do, in my opinion. I mean, I don't, I don't know why you would go in. Now, this is there is an argument to make where people will say this is actually the best time to not lock in your rate and it's the best time to get adjustable because based on historical figures and what the Fed has done in the past, this is the time where if you were to just keep it adjustable, it's more likely to come down in the next few years, meaning you'll actually end up saving more money versus locking in something at where we are right now with the interest rates. If you lock it in now, you're actually losing out on those savings that you could have had. So that, that, that's like an argument a lot of people are making. But- Either way, if you're going in, and as I mentioned, if you can cash flow today and you're conservative in your underwriting, assuming that it's going to be a higher interest rate on your exits, how could, I mean, chances are, now there's nothing that's guaranteed this is an investment, right? But the probability of it being higher than where you are, and even if it is higher, how much higher? If it's a few you know, basis points higher, you're, you'll, it'll still be like fine. Typically, interest rates don't affect depending on how, how, how high you're underwriting initially, if you're doing it right now, even if you do like 50 basis point higher on your, when you, when you refi or when you sell, regardless, it won't affect it as much. Right. And it's more likely to be lower is what I'm saying. So either way, I don't think the interest rates are really the reason I think interest rates, what they're causing right now, more than anything is sellers are not looking to sell because buyers like us are not able to pay the prices they're looking for. So they're waiting, but buyers, most buyers are actually not on the sidelines. I think a lot of people are looking for deals. Um, they're just not able to make anything pencil out. And there's almost no deal flow right now. I know we were speaking about it earlier with brokerages, but 
most brokers right now are almost 50%, you know, 40 to 50% lower in overall revenue this year so far than they were last year. So things like that are, are, are happening. It's, it's real. And I think there'll be more opportunities in the next later half of the year, but as a buyer, you should always be looking. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I guess in terms of that, um, adjustable versus fixed rate debate, that's a, you know, that's a, I guess that is a timeless debate, you know, it hasn't been for many years, but I, I guess the, the idea is that if you bought, have an adjustable rate and you have a rate cap and that's, and you still have cash flow after that, that you protect your up, you protect the downside scenario, but most likely, or, you know, rates will stay, be stable or come down and that will end up giving you more cash flow. That would be, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I guess that the idea is that if you don't have a rate cap, I'm just going to give an example. I read this article, I think Veritas Capital, a big LA industry, or I guess um, multifamily, but um, yeah. but just large fund, how to give back a $400 million portfolio of multifamily because they that. literally bought bridge with no rate cap and interest rates went up too high. And I think they were literally handing in $400 million of, of multifamily. I, I, I haven't checked in the story recently, but that's just an example. Like, you know, rate caps are definitely important if you're going to take the risk of an adjustable loan, which is, I guess what people are, are learning in this last couple of years and, and starting now, but um, that I guess fixed rate in a way is if you can lock in fixed rate now with cash flow like you're kind of set, you know, that takes a lot of the right. risk out of the deal. For sure. For sure. And I think that's where you as an, an operator or an investor, you have to have a investment philosophy. And obviously the reason that a lot of people may not want to lock in a rate right now, as I mentioned, is because you're pretty much losing out on any potential savings if interest rates were to come down. Now, I guess this is where you as an investor need to sort of try to educate yourself on that topic so that you can have your own opinion on it because people have different opinions on it, right? And then you can determine what the probability of interest rates being higher or lower when you plan on exiting, because that will dictate whether or not it makes sense to be you know, locked or, or not. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you choose to lock it in or, or not, either way, I think as long as it cash flows, as I mentioned, day one, uh, that's where you can't really, my opinion, you can't go wrong. Uh, if it cash flows today and you're locking it in or you're not, and even if you stress test it and it still cash flows, uh, obviously you can't stress test forever. So maybe I would personally feel more comfortable if I knew sort of what my downside risk was and I didn't have it up to like, you know, no, no adjustable rate and who knows how high the Fed will go. So I think that's not necessarily something, a risk that we would be willing to take, but obviously there's a, there's an upside to it. So I think it just depends on the investor's philosophy. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And that's definitely where it comes into, you know, I guess maybe the last couple of years, you didn't have to think as hard about these things, but now this is where it comes into a critical thinking and like figuring this stuff out and um, making your own kind of very predictions, but more like your own sensitive analysis of the likelihood of things going out and how that, what that means for my business, for me, for you and, and for any yeah. individual. So um, yeah. That's a, I'm glad we had this conversation, got into the nuance of this is very um, interesting. I'm sure I was going to learn a lot. Um, I guess you're ready for lightning round. For sure. All right. So we did one last, uh, last year. So I guess I, I got to switch up the questions. So let's start with, um, what's your favorite band or uh favorite mm. musical act or, or artist? Just, you know, artist, okay, cool. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the first person that comes to mind, 
Justin Bieber. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Why do you like Justin Bieber? I, I I think like recently his um he's like some good Christian songs. I I like him. He's like a I'm not a, I'm not a lover boy, but he's got some <laughs> like you know it's a mixture of pop and good hits and it's it's wholesome music in comparison to like the old music I used to listen to like rap and stuff. Not very wholesome. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's some wholesome rap. I love oh, J. Sure. Cole. I said not the ones I was listening to. <laughs> oh, I got you. J. Cole. Yeah. He, he's my favorite. He's my favorite he's uh, favorite, rapper. North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, true. That's um, um he's in your, your neighborhood. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> but um, so what's, I guess we, we know the last book you recommended, if I remember correctly, was um, Think Like a Monk. I read that. I loved it. Um, yeah. Definitely cool to get that Western uh angle on a very eastern philosophy um which is really cool that was a really really interesting uh, way of integrating in a lot of like tangible actual lessons of buddhist thought um yeah. what's your next what's another book that you love i'm gonna read it because you got a good recommendation last time yeah man i'm on a roll <laughs> um have you read shoe dog no but i i, I downloaded goodreads yesterday and i put it on my list already yeah you should read it you'd like it i love it honestly it was really good Awesome. Oh, I'm going to put it. Yeah. I'm going to move it up to the top of the list. Um, oh, but yeah, I see some of the books you got behind you. You have a uh, who not how Rashad poor dad. Um, thinking okay, go rich, uh, creature from Jekyll Island principles, all good books. Um, creature from Jekyll Island is the one that screwed up, screwed with my mind the most. <laughs> oh, you read that? Okay. It's long. Yeah. It's a long book, but, um, it's pretty, pretty crazy. <laughs> um, very relevant to the conversation today though so <laughs> yeah yeah i know <laughs> um so um i guess this advice may have changed from last time but what's a, a piece of advice you give to someone who who wants to follow in your footsteps yeah i would say uh, for me it's two things one like i guess they kind of goes in and so the other day i think everyone has we're all defined by what we spend our time on whether you're in prayer with your faith or reading a book trying to learn something or spending it with certain people, it all comes hand in hand. So the books you're reading, the content you're listening to, what you're thinking about, all these things will make out what your life and external looks like. For me, yeah, my number one advice is spending your time doing the things and with the people that you'd like to be like, or that'll make you better in whatever way you, that means to you. For me, it's faith, um, obviously real estate, education, family, things like that. But I try to spend my time with the people that will make me better and improve. Um, and it comes down to trying to be a multifamily syndicator, spending time with multifamily syndicators. So sometimes that does take an investment or just reading their books, listening to their podcast, creating a podcast like you did, Ben. I think it's awesome because you're able to get us on in the, all these people and peers and network and now that you're peers onto a call with you for an hour, right? Uh, and it's an invaluable amount of time for us because we get to network, you and me. So I think people, it's... It, People may make excuses for not having enough money or not being smart enough, whatever. Like at the end of the day, it's just if you invest that time into it, you can literally do anything, in my opinion. Most things, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, that's a, I definitely feel that and definitely part of the motivation for starting a podcast. Definitely spend a lot of my time listening to them too. But it feels like yeah. if you're not directly talking to them, like I've become friends with so many people who don't even know who I am, like Lex Friedman. I consider him a good friend, even though he's never heard yeah. me speak. I listen to him for hours, probably thousands of hours. Um, yeah. But yeah, you get to, you, it's, it's really like spending time with these people because you get to hear their thoughts and their feelings and 
their knowledge and you get to learn from it and grow from it and uh, get that influence and, you know, their hard work, their, their mindset rubs off on you. And it's like spending time with, with people, with friends. 100%. So, um, and since I put you on the spot, I want to give you another chance for revenge. So what's another question you have for me? Yeah, man. Um, what's the hardest thing that you had to do this week? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> the week started. Today's Monday. Let's go back to last Monday. Last Monday? Well, I was going to say, I guess one thing came to my mind. Um, I read Dante's Inferno. I read it, read it last yesterday. And that was just like really intense book. It's about, you know, like just these incredible depictions of people being tortured in hell. Um it's pretty scary. Uh, <laughs> and so that was, that was pretty hard. It was also like hard to, it's like, you know, it was written in Italian and translated to like old English. So yeah. kind of like really like trying to soak in what, what uh, was being written about and why it was important. Um, I guess that on that same note, I, I was reading uh, Aristotle's ethics and like, that could be, that's hard to read, but like, you know, you can just read it, but like the hard part is like actually engaging with it and like reading it like what does he really mean like that's like a that's a mental exercise like you can't do that without enough sleep like you have to like like, you know it takes like an hour to get through a couple pages you really gotta like push yourself and like understand what it means and then convert what it means into what does that mean for me and how can I become better and like that's a hard exercise anyone who doesn't think it's hard is not getting out of it what they need to be that's exactly that's so true I should I that's something I struggle with I reading I read like the Bible for example half the time I'm like I do not know what I just read but I did my 10 minutes you know what I mean so something mm-hmm. that I could do better is um like you said engaging with it I think that's important that's awesome. yeah speaking of I'm in a class called um it's pretty much Bible and philosophy and so I'm reading Genesis but like I'm spending like a, a probably a week per per page and really? really really thinking about it and there's like the layers never unstop I never stop unraveling the amount of wisdom ba- baked into the to the bible is just yeah. just incredible so yeah, yeah. that's insane bro <laughs> yeah well i have the right it's for it's it's also part of my homework i have to write like eight pages on like one okay. passage of genesis like i'm reading i'm oh. I, i've only gotten like i'm only on book three <laughs> i've read the, the creation yeah. and yeah. the garden so far cool man yeah i, I don't yeah, I've been reading it for like a few months now. And I mean, I do 10 minutes a day and I'm not going that fast, but I, I, I'm thinking I will, I'll read it again one day, but it's so long. You know, I feel like it'll take me two years to finish it. I guess you just keep going. You know, I don't know. I guess you'll, I, I'm figuring it all out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll send you my, my essay. Yeah. You'll, you'll go back and like, <laughs> I didn't even, I, like, <laughs> you know, but some people just read the Bible. Some people like really, really deeply go into it. So yeah. <laughs> you get a lot from both ways either you get to learn how to live or then or if you look really really hard read really hard you learn why you ought to live in a certain way so um awesome well that's a that's a cool way to end it um where can people find out more about you nowadays yeah so uh, my brother made an awesome checklist for anyone who's looking to vet a passive investment opportunity it's www.donisinvestmentgroup.com backslash checklist you can visit that same website minus the backslash checklist to visit our website. And then we're on all social media platforms at Donis Brothers. I'm at Jeffrey Donis. 
And then also make sure to check out our podcast, The Real Estate Monopoly. Yeah, REM. That's a good good naming convention. <laughs> well, I encourage everyone to check out what Donna's have to offer. A lot of uh, Donna's brothers have to offer a lot of good stuff. And I'm um, excited to stay in touch and, and see where your, your progress um, exciting. Love to learn alongside yeah. you. And um, um, until next time. Awesome. I appreciate it, Ben. God bless. Awesome. Bro. Jeffrey and everyone, keep making milestones. Before you go, I just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to another awesome episode of Real Estate Milestones. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to offer your support, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to increase the show's visibility and help the message get out to a greater audience. I really appreciate your time and support and keep making milestones. The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts.